Good morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Wednesday, and you are watching AM to DM. Our thoughts are with Jesse Smollett and his family this morning, of course. Uh, in just a few minutes, I will have an in-depth conversation about that story and the latest updates with writer George M. Johnson and Zach Stefford, editor-in-chief of The Advocate magazine. Really looking forward to that conversation. For now, though, Howard Schultz, another billionaire, has announced a potential independent run to become the next president. The Daily Beast reported Howard Schultz blames Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for his decision to run as independent, and it has to do with her plan to tax the rich. Stephen Colbert had this to say, who hasn't been in a Starbucks bathroom and thought, the guy in charge of this should be in charge of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Whitney Falloon, senior associate editor at Eater, joins us now to talk about her story on why running Starbucks doesn't mean you should run for president. Good morning, Whitney. Good morning. Okay, so is Schultz at all qualified or is this just the Trump billionaire, we're gonna have rich presidents forever effect? Uh, is he qualified? I mean, you know, I think we can say Schultz is a more successful businessman than our current president. So. <laughs> touche, touche. Um, I mean, that's curious. I mean, of course, he's gotten a lot of criticism this morning or just really every day since he announced his interest in running. But from your perspective um, at Eater, what are some examples um, of his record in customer service at Starbucks that kind of uh, kind of raise some concerns if he decides to become a politician? Well, you know, I think obviously you have to say he's done a lot of great things at Starbucks um, under him. You know, they introduced some of like the most uh, impressive and progressive employee benefits in the entire food and beverage industry. So you have to give him credit for that. But, you know, he's really saying that he believes he can unite a divided America. Um, but his previous efforts in this area have been even, you know, a little too aspirational uh, for a coffee shop chain, uh, I think we have to mention, look back to 2015, that um, very ill-conceived um, race together cup writing campaign where they wanted their baristas to write on customers' coffee cups to spark conversations about um, race, which was just really bad, really misguided. And I think they ended up uh, discontinuing that after a week. Um, and, you know, you could say seemingly that didn't even accomplish much in the way of um, bringing about, you know, more racial harmony at the company itself. You know, two years later, there was that huge controversy where um, a Starbucks manager in, I think it was Philadelphia, called the cops on two black men in the store for no good reason. So he's saying he wants to unite a divided America, but... Uh, his track record isn't really that impressive in that area, so. His, his track record in that area, not too impressive. I do wanna add, like, it, it has gotten me thinking, right? He's running as an independent, although I believe he's been a Democrat in the, pace, in, in the past, but like, what would his base look like? Like, who is he hoping to attract? Especially when right out of the gate, the first thing he said was kind of like, but don't tax billionaires. Like, not the strongest platform. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I think this question of like, who is he going to attract as voters is what everybody is wondering right now. I mean, you know, obviously he's not going to get a lot of liberals to vote for him because when we're talking about the left, obviously the biggest concern for 2020 is get Donald Trump out of office. And a lot of people aren't going to want to quote unquote waste their votes on a third party candidate who historically has like, you know, basically a zero chance of winning. Um, so he's also said, you know, he came out against um, that 70% income tax for the rich. And he's also said he's against free universal health care because it's fiscally irresponsible. So and then I think when you look at the right, um, he's probably going to alienate a lot of very conservative voters. I mean, you look at some of the really socially progressive things he's done at Starbucks, like his uh, initiative to hire, I think it was... 10,000 or more refugees um, and them trying to do this sort of like more inclusive holiday coffee cups um, that has made them historically like a really big target for conservative backlash. So 
Who are the people that are going to vote for Howard Schultz? That is the question. Who indeed. Uh, Kirsten Baptiste tweeted, Howard Schultz running is the most gentrified yoga candidate I've heard uh, so far, which fair point. But I mean, from your perspective, I mean, uh, were you surprised to hear that um, he was going to run at all? Was that totally shocking or something that perhaps, as you mentioned, some of those past wild agendas was like, yeah, he would do something like this. Yeah, no, I wasn't particularly surprised. This is something that's sort of been in the rumor mill for years now. And I think once he stepped down from Starbucks, everybody sort of um, saw this coming. But, you know, what it comes down to is like he hasn't really come out with any um, really solid platform that he's going to run on. So far, all he's said is that he thinks the biggest issue facing America right now is our $21 trillion national debt. So he wants to focus on reducing that. But if you talk to like economists, they don't necessarily think that's such a huge problem. So. So that's that. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I just, I mean, the guy should just get involved with like local politics. Like, you know, start small, my man. That's how, that's how Starbucks happened. It started as a little, as a little coffee shop right there by Pike's Place in Seattle. Just started with one small one. Then you grew up, my man. Maybe the local legislature, some, I mean, you know, shit. town hall stuff. What a PTA council, honestly. Um, Alexandra Petri had this to say. Why doesn't Howard Schultz just try to go to space like a regular billionaire? <laughs> Absolutely. And let's take that question to the timeline. If you were a billionaire, mm. what else would you do besides trying to run for president? Mm. Let us know using the hashtag AM2. I would be on a boat. So many options. I would be on a private island. I would be on a boat coming to harass you That's on that true. private island. That's true. All right, well, listen, Facebook is in hot water for the, I don't know, millionth time. They just live in hot water now. But this time, and this is legit what's going on, the company was paying money to spy on teens. Here's a tweet from Josh Constein at TechCrunch. Big news, Facebook has been paying teens and adults $20 a month to give it root access to all data transmitted by their phones. Josh, who broke this story, joins us now. Good morning, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You've had a wild 12 hours, but let's start at the beginning. Facebook has been secretly paying people to install a Facebook Research VPN, which is a virtual private network, on their phone. Now, I don't know half of those words, either. but how did it work? So basically, Facebook has been running this research program since 2016. And what it does is it pays 13 to 35-year-olds to install this app. But it's not just an app. It actually gives them uh, gives Facebook root access to look at all the data transferring through the person's phone. Uh, and so what that means is that they can look at your web traffic, your apps that you use and how you use them, and even decrypt your secure encrypted browsing sessions. Uh, and so this was, it was basically collecting as much data as it could for competitive analysis. This same kind of app called Onovo, which Facebook bought back in 2014, is how it spotted WhatsApp and realized that it should pay $19 billion to acquire this company before it disrupted its messaging dominance. And so Facebook's been paying people to use this app. But the problem is that it uses Apple's enterprise certificate system to distribute the app. And that's only supposed to be for internal use, employee-only apps. But Facebook was abusing that program to distribute that app outside of the company. And so we reported that not only was this really freaky in terms of the privacy implications, it was also just a blatant violation of Apple's policy. Um, so, Josh, one of our producers, uh, Julia Moser, just tweeted, the only times I remember to check Facebook, personally, I guess, these days, is when we're covering another privacy scandal on AM to DM, which is true for me as well. Um, as, you know, uh, someone who covers tech full time, can you kind of explain the scale of this, um, this scandal? Because, again, as you said, it's like the millionth time. So how alarming is this or should it be? I think it's very alarming for users to realize how much Facebook cares about their data, that it's actually willing to buy it from people. And it put a price on people's privacy, $20 per month 
in gift cards, but you could also earn referral fees. And so some people who have actually been making quite a lot of money, especially if you're one of those teenagers to whom a $20 bill each month for basically doing nothing other than selling all your privacy, it seems like a really good deal. And we don't know exactly how many users were on this program or how much Facebook paid out. But we did realize that this was something that was going to really worry people around the world. And so that's why we wanted to put out this report. And what happened next was pretty crazy. Well, so that's fascinating to me. Just real quick, let's talk about that. Because when you say teenager, I think I was like, oh, 18 plus, maybe it's 18 and 19 year olds. But it was 13 year olds and up, which was so shocking to me. But how did Facebook get people to sign up for this? Because as a 13 year old, if somebody's like, here's 20 bucks a month, I mean, I would have said yes. So, So how did they get users to sign up? So Facebook was using these intermediaries, these testing services for apps called uh, Utest, Beta Bound, and Applause. And what Facebook was basically doing was having these intermediaries hide Facebook's identity. It was only once you really started the signup process that you even learned that Facebook was behind this big program. Uh, And it was running advertisements for this program on Snapchat and Instagram targeted to teens, trying to recruit them and figure out what is Facebook going to do to get teens to stop abandoning the service. Wow. Well, Josh, earlier this morning, you tweeted, update, Facebook is shutting down its iOS research app after we exposed its policy problems and sparked criticism from all of you. Thanks for spreading the word. That, of course, is great. Thank you for that impact journalism. But uh, what's to stop them from doing something similar, you know, next week? So what actually happened, we've just found out this morning, is that while Facebook last night said that it had shut down its iOS program and didn't mention anything about why, this morning, Apple informed us that it actually pulled the certificate that allowed Facebook to run the program last night before Facebook made this announcement claiming that it was shutting down the program itself. And Apple issued a very sternly worded, worded statement this morning saying that Facebook did, in fact, violate the enterprise certificate program's policies the way that TechCrunch reported and that the company was in basically in big trouble with Apple and that Apple would shut down its ability to do this from now on. Now, the program is still running on Android, and we've reached out to Google to find out what's going on there. But really, it shows that Facebook has angered one of its biggest partners, Apple, whose iOS platform it depends on. And so this is going to create even more tension between the two companies who've already been sparring in the press with Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, complaining and criticizing uh, Facebook's data collection practices and Facebook kind of uh, jabbing back with Mark Zuckerberg saying that he thought that Tim Cook's comments were glib and trying to say that, oh, we offer our our, our product for free to everyone rather than charging hundreds of dollars for it like Apple does. All right, so tensions growing between Apple and Facebook. We will certainly keep an eye on that story. And Josh, hope to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, friends, we've still got loads to talk about this morning, of course, but first, let's get into these fire tweets. Let's do a little fire tweets, baby. Fire! Fire! All right, this first tweet comes from Jordan. A little math trauma. Uh, Normal person, uh, nine plus seven equals 16. And in this case, Jordan and me, I think if 10 plus seven is 17 and nine is one less than 10, then nine (laughs) plus seven must be 16. That's that's literally why I'm so bad at math and what's going on. That's what I do too, it's the mental gymnastics. Calculating tip like at lunch and I'm like, and this is why in the second grade, math multiplication turntables were so hard. Absolutely. to get to that even number, you know, you throw a nine or a seven in there, it's Ooh. gonna mess me up. You Don't gotta do those. Med- <laughs> okay. Chaz tweeted, "How to save money on the weekend? One, take a just a little pregame nap at six. Two, wake up at four a.m. realizing you slept through going out once again. Three, profits." Absolutely. It's true. It's a wonderful, yeah. uh, I've saved a lot of money like this recently. I also call this the polar vortex weekend strategy. <laughs> just, going nowhere. Just, nowhere. No, Nothing's happening. No outside at all. <laughs> this next week comes from Jesse McLaren, friend of the show. We love you, Jesse. Dog bites off my hand. Owner. Oh, he's just excited. <laughs> <laughs> he's 
just excited. Oh. He just took a hunk of your flesh. He's just ha- he's a, he's a little bubbly today. Communicating. Yeah, I I won't lie though. I don't mind it when people are like dog jumps up on me and like the owner's like, hey, get down. Get, I'm like, don't tell. I will dance with your dog. A, your dog can yeah. jump up. A Not dog a getting all up in my. It's like the only thing I will excuse. And Isaac knows I hate like personal space. A dog. I'm like I will forgive like bite my face off. <laughs> all right, <laughs> you ready for this tweet yeah, of the day? <laughs> tweet of the day comes from Dontel. You all begged for this weather so you all could really start dressing. Now look at y'all, cold and ragged. <laughs> that is so mean, but also really, That's I am one really of those cold. people. I wanted autumn, I didn't want this. I, I retweeted <laughs> a bunch of updates from Chicago where people are like waking up and like the inside of their windows, like in their living room, covered in sheets of mm-hmm. ice or like their doorknobs, again, inside their mm-hmm. homes are like covered in ice. Like, yeah, I wanted I, like. I, I wanted pea coat season. Yeah. I didn't want to be a yeah. frozen pea. I wanted false. Okay. Coming up, I sit down with Finkwa Wall, star of the new BET drama American Soul, which is about Don Cornelius and Soul Train. But up next, we are going to talk about Jesse Smollett. Uh, gosh, a lot of updates there. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Overnight, the Chicago Sun-Times reported that the FBI was looking into a letter sent to Fox offices in Chicago last week that contained threatening language towards actor Jesse Smollett and a white powdery substance. And, of course, yesterday we learned that the actor was reporting that he had been brutally attacked on the street in Chicago. I'm joined now by two friends of the show, writer George M. Johnson and editor-in-chief of The Advocate magazine, Zach Stafford. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, I wish we had a better occasion to talk, but I am happy to see both of your faces. Um, Zach, uh, in the past, you have worked as a crime reporter based in Chicago, one of the reasons Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you. So what do we know for sure about what Jesse Smollett says happened? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we know from the Chicago police reporting and what we should really make note of here is that Jesse is working very closely with detectives there. Um, I spoke with Jesse's people yesterday and they are not going to make a statement and they're going to just focus on uh, giving the police everything they need in the FBI. But what we do know is that Jesse around 2 a.m. says that he was attacked by two men in ski masks um, in the Streeterville neighborhood of Chicago, which is quite close to Trump Towers. Um, just a few blocks away. Uh, and he then, uh, you know, he was punched. He had a noose put on top of his neck um, and all these other attacks. And he made his way back to what we assume is the place he was staying, his potential home there in Chicago while he films. Um, and then he got himself to the hospital. Oh, he didn't make it to his home. He got himself to the hospital. Sorry. Um, so at the hospital is where he reported the crimes. Um, the police are now investigating these uh, these allegations he's made. He did obviously show, you know, through the Lee Daniels post, he had a swollen face. He had been punched. He is still in the hospital, to my knowledge. Um, so those are the facts that we do know. Uh, the allegations swarming Jesse's incident are that these assailants used homophobic and racist language, which the Chicago police did corroborate. Um, I spoke to them last night, and they did say Jesse has continuously reported that as part of his reporting of the incident. Um, and they themselves even put up a statement called calling the attack racist and homophobic or saying that the slurs were those. And as a crime reporter that worked in Chicago for many years, I rarely see the Chicago police say that. So these are very interesting circumstances. The Chicago police historically does not take uh, anti-black and anti-queer violence very seriously. There have been a string of trans murders there that they've never responded to like this. So this situation is very interesting in that it does involve a celebrity, but also the police are acting in ways I personally have not seen them do historically. Right, a lot going on here. Well, uh, George, as Zach noticed, uh, noted, uh, the details uh, that the Chicago Police Department have released about this attack are absolutely chilling. Um, but I've also uh, been struck by the uh, widespread outpouring of support Jesse's gotten from, of course, people in Hollywoods, but we're also seeing people in Congress and you know, kind of all over the world uh, reaching out. Uh, why do you think this news has affected people so deeply? Um, I just think we're in a time where, you know, it's so much like chaotic, chaotic things are happening. Right. And then you have like this whole thing where a lot of people think that visibility kind of protects people. And so when you see someone who lives at an intersection like Jesse, who's black and queer, um, is still vulnerable to these type of attacks and this type of hatred, um, it really 
it, it lets the world know like nobody is absolved. No one is realistically safe because they're more visible. And in fact, uh, us being more visible often makes us more of a target. Uh, I think the belief in the, the world oftentimes is, oh, you know, the more visible a particular marginalized group is, the more safer it becomes and the more acceptable it becomes. Uh, we, again, saw the symbolism that was supposed to be the progress of Barack Obama. And now look where we are. You know, we're just a few years from um, marriage equality. And we're what this year is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And look where we are. A black queer, one of the most visible black queer people in the world has a noose tied around his neck, which speaks to a whole other part of uh, our history around lynching. Um, it's called, you know, not only anti-black terms, but uh, anti-queer terms. It, it just, I think it just speaks to everyone to, to now fully understand what we are going through, many of us who are living at these marginalizations and the stories that often get buried. Uh, as Zach said, the, the trans murders that don't get reported, the, the queer and black queer men whose stories uh, aren't often seen are now coming to the light. Yeah, it hits home. Well, uh, Zach, uh, something I saw on the timeline, and I, I empathize with this concern, a lot of people have expressed frustration uh, with uh, a set of words that is used when something like this happens. You know, it's described as, quote, a possible hate crime. Um, and that can feel loaded. Um, people draw connections to, like, racially charged, for example, as opposed to racist. Based on your experience yeah. as an editor and a crime reporter, walk us through the reasoning behind why this language is used. Yeah, thank you so much for asking that, Saeed. I said that to my newsroom yesterday when we were reporting. I said, you all watch what happens next is people are going to have a lot of feelings about us saying possible. And we just have to be conscious of that. And, you know, the reason why people get so angry about this in the situation is that, you know, hate crimes historically are symbolic legislation. Um, they don't present the hardest penalties, <clears throat> excuse me, for crimes. Um, but they are something that we've designed in our justice system to show minority communities that this attack isn't just about the singular person, but their community. So that's why people have so many feelings wrapped up in them. Um, and deservingly so, you know, as a crime reporter, I struggled a lot with that language being like, I know this person did this out of hate, but do I have the evidence? And that's what the police are going to lean on. They cannot say it's definitely a hate crime until they want to have two people in custody in this case, um, that they can then charge with a hate crime. And then when they're charged with the hate crime, then they get to do the due process and constitutional rights they get to get in front of a, a jury. Um, and then without a reasonable doubt, that jury has to find with all the evidence presented that that attack was done because this person was hated. And that's really key here is that the police and prosecutors have to prove that Jesse Smollett, when he was attacked, the sole reason behind it is because he was a black gay man. Um, and right now, the reason why they're dancing around it is that he's so famous. And so they don't want to get in a situation where they say it's only because he's black and gay. Um, and it's not because of like anti-Trump comments or these other situations. So then when they get in front of a jury and the prosecutors are, prosecutors are trying to bring justice to the case, the jury's like, actually, you have not chosen uh, shown me through uh, without a reasonable doubt that this was because he was black and gay. Um, and that's why hate crimes are so hard to prosecute. And we know this because our justice system isn't built to believe the stories and experiences of folks experiencing violence uh, when there isn't, you know, a camera there. Even when there are cameras there, we see that justice isn't served to people of color and queer people. Um, so that's why a lot of prosecutors just bypass hate crime laws and go to harsher, you know, aggravated battery and so on and so forth. Because also these hate crimes are defined differently in every state. A lot of states, this crime would, may not even be a hate crime at all, wouldn't even be considered that. So that's why it's so complicated and why national news outlets are saying possible. And the police are calling it possible because they don't yet have the, you know, tangible evidence to where they know they can hit a home run. And if they say it is a hate crime and it goes in front of a jury, they could lose the entire case, meaning just because we called it a hate crime too soon, according to the evidence that is tangible, um, the case could be thrown out potentially. Um, so that's why people are very cautious in that. But I, you know, as an editor, as a black gay man that's reported on this, I completely agree that it is hard to see that headline say possible when you know through your lived experiences that that is not possible. It is actual. Um, and that's why we at The Advocate yesterday did the reporting and we continue to report on the story. But we're creating space for black queer folk to write their, their essays and talk about the realities of experiencing this violence through the media, seeing this because they've had their own experiences that are too similar to this. But they know that this is not a possibility, but it is what happened. Right. Complicated uh, and troubling. We'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Zach Stafford and George M. Johnson, thank you both uh, for joining me this morning.
Thank you. Thank you. All right. Up next,、uh, Isaac and I are going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News DC Bureau Chief Kate Nocera. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. Morning, guys. How are you? Pretty good. All right. Well,、uh, here's a tweet from ABC News: Stacey Abrams to deliver the Democratic response to President Trump's State of the Union address、uh, at a moment when our nation needs to hear from le- leaders who can unite for a common purpose. I am honored to be delivering the Democratic State of the Union response.、Uh, Kate, what are Democrats trying to telegraph to voters、uh, with this choice? Yeah, I mean, Stacey Abrams. Recall in 2016, she lost very, very, very narrowly in the red state of Georgia、uh, to Republican、uh, Brian Kemp, and、uh, you know this, she is a rising star in the Democratic Party.、Uh, she's someone who's talking a lot about voter suppression, sort of the values of the Democratic Party, and it's it's pretty clear why they chose her. I mean, she she became a national figure, and、uh, she's also there's speculation that she will run for Senate. Uh, in 2020,、uh, against Senator David Perdue, so this is a moment to sort of, you know, put the money where <laughs> put the money where the mouth is, right? And uh, put her、um, make sure that she is the one sort of communicating the core values of the Democratic Party.、Right. I love it. It's like one of the politicians to watch. Here she comes. She's going to keep kicking、yep. ass. Well, now for a very district、yep. story. Here's a tweet from Paul McLeod. The Progressive Caucus called today for a ban on members of Congress living in their offices. Momentum is growing among Democrats to finally end this noble, weird, problematic tradition. Yeah, it's so strange,、um, Kate. I've heard a bit about it. You know, like I remember Paul Ryan kind of using it、yeah. to brag about his frugality. Like, look at me, I'm sleeping in my office. How common is it for Congress people to sleep in their office?、Uh, how does it work exactly?、Uh, how long has it been going on? <laughs> Um, it sort of、uh, became a really big trend in 2010 when the Tea Party、uh, came to Washington, and it was a way to sort of say, like, "Hey, look, I am saving you money. I am I am a frugal member of Congress here to you know reduce the deficit by sleeping in my in my office."、Um, we don't have an exact list, but the number was somewhere around、uh, 40 to 50 at the sort of informal count.、Um, but、uh, it was. It, you know, it it's it could be interpreted as problematic, right? Because members of Congress who are maybe changing in their office in the morning or going to take a shower in the House gym, and you know what employees are coming into the office at what time, it is kind of creepy when you think about it. And so,、uh, Democratic members are really examining the issue and seeing if it's.、Uh, Something they're going to need to ban. Oh, I didn't. I had no idea that it was that widespread. Are there legitimate reasons,、right. though, why a member might decide to live in their office? I mean, DC rent is very expensive. Yeah, sure.、Um, there's <clears throat> the other side of this is that members of Congress make a hundred and seventy-four thousand dollars a year, and while that is, you know, that's a good amount of money,、uh, these are also people that are having to maintain homes in both、uh, the district where, as you said, rent is very high,、um, and in their and in their home districts.、Um, and oftentimes, you know, if you're supporting if you're supporting a family, if you're you know having to commute back and forth, that money is only going to go so far, and these they, they haven't gotten a raise in a number of years because it is very very unpopular. <laughs> To give politicians a raise, right? So I think part of the scope of looking at this, what the Democratic Party is going to do, is say, okay, is there anything we can do? Is there a housing stipend we can give? You know, kind of what is the solution、uh, to this problem that you know, for a certain amount of members who are sleeping in their office, is trying to solve? Yeah,、um, of course. You know, part of the issue I think of this is just gender, and that you know, Capitol Hill was for so long built around the idea that men would be the only people、uh, that would need to worry about having offices on Capitol Hill at all. So, how does Me Too、right. kind of fit into this, if at all? Yeah,、uh, it came up a lot. I mean, Paul, Paul McLeod and Lysandra Villa、uh, wrote a story. You know, back kind of when. 
uh, the Me Too conversation was at its height on Capitol Hill. But a lot of uh, the members of Congress who were very involved in changing the legislation said this is actually a problem. This is, you know, something we really need to look at as part of the scope of, you know, tackling the Me Too problem on the Hill. If if people are changing in their offices, you know, kind of what is what does that mean for the employees that are coming in? Will it be discriminatory to women who work for male members of Congress if they can't go into the office at a certain time because the member is living there? Do you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of it, 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 the scope of all of this is something that they're going to take a look at. Absolutely. Interested to see how this plays out. Kate, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. All right. I'm just happy to hear that politicians are going to need uh, affordable housing. I think all of D.C. could use some more affordable housing. So I'm just putting that out there real quick. That's, that's true. Don't hate that. Well, up next, I sit down with actor Sinqua Walls, who is playing Don Cornelius in the new BET drama American Soul. Stay tuned. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Sinqua Wall, star of the new BET drama, American Soul. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. I am so excited about this. Oh, uh, man, I appreciate it, it. This is great. You, yeah. you play Don Cornelius, of yes. course, the legendary host of Soul Train. Yes. Uh, I, I'm just so excited about this because it's like, you know, it's a new way to look at American history, right. pop culture, and right. of course, like, music. Right. Uh, what are some things about Don Cornelius you learned from working on the show? I mean, I think this has been really like a treasure chest of unpacking a man because mm-hmm. one of the things that we knew Don Cornelius on Saturdays mm-hmm. and we knew him hosting the show, but then you get to meet him as a man in these, in these 10 parts of this first season and his extensive boxing career, I've always been kind Uh-oh. of surprised by. Yeah, he almost was a, was a pro fighter. Okay. He had a choice between being a pro fighter and then going to the military. He chose the military. Huh. His father was pushing him to become a fighter. And so in the show, we, we dive into that, that relationship that mm-hmm. they had. Mm-hmm and how it was surrounded by boxing. So he was a person that really stood for, meant, or I guess walked with his, with intention. Mm-hmm. And I think a part of that was because he was a boxer that wasn't afraid to jump into a fight. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh, that was so good. Now, of course, I, and I, we were just talking about this during the break. So, uh, you know, I think of like the Soul Train line. I'm yes. going to make you dance later. So, okay. you know, get All ready right. for that, friends. He's going to dance. Um, but, you know, it, you were like, Don Cornelius only danced once on the entire? He only danced once on Soul Train. You know, it was, it was, um, an episode where he was motivated by the dancers who okay. wanted him to come along on the okay, soul train like, and, and be a part of it. Uh-huh. And they're like, yeah, Don, you uh-huh. know, do it, do it, do it, do it. He did it one time, slipped and almost busted his. Uh-huh. And after that, he was like, I'll never dance on soul train again. I'm going to stay cool in my platform shoes. I'll interview everyone else and make them dance. Because that's yeah. true. I, the way I think of it, it's like, yeah, he's on, on the stage. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He he did, it. it was this, actually this move where you see it and he caught himself. So, okay. you know, he used to actually be known as a good dancer in okay. Chicago. So he does this move and then he like slipped and it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. oh, and yeah, he did like, he had the, like, the Beyonce he did the whole Super thing. Bowl. Yeah, he like, was like, okay, oh. I like that's and a long was like, history yes, of that. Yes, and after that, he was like, never again. You're not going to okay. catch me off guard. Yeah, that's real. I get you it. Know? I get it. Well, I mean, it's cool. I mean, because again, the show, you know, um, Soul Train, as you said, was a part of people's daily lives yes. um, in the 70s. I remember watching reruns when I was a kid, you know? Same, same, same. Um, So what else is kind of going on in American history at that time that we kind of get to see you as your character explores it? I think the biggest thing that I love that we tackle in the show is the backdrop of the MLK assassination in the Mm. show. And you see how that is affecting everyone in society. And even though these people are coming together to dance on Soul Train and Don has this amazing idea, There's still life going on. I mean, this show was an innovation of culture in America, but specifically black culture in America Mm -hmm. and the way black people were perceived. One of those was a leader, Martin Luther King, who affected all of that. And we tackle that in the show. And I think it's really cool how we integrate those worlds of music and also life. Um, seamlessly. That's pretty cool. Yeah, man. Yeah, and speaking of which, there's a lot of celebrities, a lot of exciting. Because yes. again, like, it, you know, Soul Train's right there with uh, music. So yes. we've got uh, Kelly Rowland. Yes, we do. We love her. Yes. Playing Gladys Knight. Killing it, too. Incredible. It. We have Michelle Williams playing yes. Diana Ross. Killing it. Screaming. Uh, what was it like working with two-thirds of Destiny's Child? Let's get the three-third. Okay. Let's get the whole third. You know what I mean? Do you want that? Like, I mean, I got to interview Michelle Williams. Like, I've, yes. And it, like, it's like, did you resist asking her about Beyonce? Yeah. Were you asking about Beyonce every day? You know what? I let, a lot of, I let a lot of the crew ask about Beyonce because I was, you know, 
trying to be in my professional space oh, of that's like, smart. hey, we are counterparts and we have thespians working <laughs> together. So I won't ask you these questions. Let's talk about the work here. So with both Michelle <laughs> and Kelly, it was really about them and yeah. us connecting. Uh -huh. And then I, obviously people got so excited because uh -huh. they were there that they would ask questions. Uh -huh. And then it became this running rumor that they're working on getting Beyonce. Maybe they're gonna get Beyonce. And I remember saying to myself, I was like, if Beyonce comes on whatever day she, she uh -huh. gifts us with her presence, right. the security on our set, everyone will need a pass. It will be insane. And I was like, shut down the entire I was like are we gonna shoot at a different soundstage? Because right now, like, we have one where people can walk up. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? No, mm -hmm. no one really knew what we were doing mm -hmm. in Atlanta. We had our own little secluded oh, okay. pocket. But if Beyonce comes to set, mm -hmm. It's a whole different ball game, I would imagine. <laughs> you gotta show up and there's like police motorcycles and everything. Screaming. It's like, what's going on, Beyonce? Is that said who, today? who would you, is there anyone you have in mind that you would like to see Beyonce play? Like, it's an old, because oh, wow. if she's done, she's kind of done the Diana Ross yes, thing with Dream yes, Girls. Yes, yes. I'm trying to think. Oh, wow. Hmm. Maybe Tina Turner. Well, we have Tina Turner. Shook. Yeah, we Who plays have Tina? Tina Turner. Gabrielle Dennis plays Tina Turner. Stop she put that we have Gabrielle Dennis and McKinley Freeman play Ike and Tina Turner on the show. Oh, and Gabrielle Dennis kills it. Oh my god. She I mean, shout out to her. I'm, she did her I'm thing. concerned. Yeah, well, you know, it was it was real. Oh, but she Ike and Tina Listen, we were standing on stage and the, the cool part about it is we had Soul Train stage days oh, and wow. we recreated the set of Soul Train. So That's you feel cool. like you're really immersed in the area. Uh -huh. We shot on the old cameras that they used at that time. Okay. And and Gabrielle does this thing where she like goes like this and then she does the Tina thing, and everybody was like, okay. Shook. She was in it, she did her work, she came prepared. I don't know who I would say for Beyonce mm -hmm. to play. I would love her to play anybody. Yeah. She can play my best friend. <laughs> Let's just have Beyonce be a special guest star love so we can interest. keep bringing her back. Yeah. Oh, I see. You know what I'm saying? I, you're yeah. sneaky. Hey, hey. <laughs> you know, I don't mind security on that day. I'm gonna have to have a name tag just to be in a scene with her. <laughs> So people know that I'm the guy that's supposed that's to be fair. there. I yeah. think that's perfectly reasonable. You know how to be respectful. Um, well, something else I love, you are also going to be on a Netflix film right. with Angela Bassett that's and right. Patricia Arquette, who's yes. had a record, especially good run Crazy, right? this year. Right. Um, it's a movie called Otherhood. Uh, yes. Tell us about it. And also, we just got to ask, what's it like being able to say Angela Bassett plays your mom? What's it like being able to say that Angela Bassett is a mentor in a mom-like capacity and still reaches out to you? Stop! That's the question. Shook! It's a gift. Oh my it's God. amazing. I, I, I'm so grateful for her in all aspects. She's been such a mentor and a guiding light in my life since the day that we worked together, since the day that we met. I learned so much by, by working with her. Mm -hmm. I watched her, I observed her, I listened to her, I asked her questions, and she taught me so much so graciously. I think the biggest thing that people need to know, and you can, it comes across in, in her social and it comes across in her, in her um, interviews, yeah. is she's a beautiful person inside and out. And she's yes. dedicated to growth in all aspects yeah. and you being great as well. Yes. Um, so that she was the gift radiates. of that. She radiates. I've yeah. never seen someone look so flawlessly beautiful with no makeup in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember her walking up when we were at Netflix and they were like, so this is Angela going to play your mom and I'd never met her before. And I was like, <laughs> right. Cool, 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 yes. cool, 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 cool. Hi. Mother. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, man, yeah. Oh, so it was so a blessing. Exciting. It was awesome. Well, I'm excited to watch it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like this moment. I mean, the, the American Soul is going to be great. Yeah. And, of course, Netflix is like a whole other level whole of engine. exposure. Yeah. Does this moment feel like my time has come? And empowered? Does yeah. this feel like, all right? I feel like I'm doing something right. You okay. know what I mean? You set an intention. I, and I always say this when I talk to people. And they say, what, do you, what would you say to any young actor? Mm -hmm. What would you say to actors getting into? Set an intention, believe in your passion, and follow it. Mm. And I just kind of stayed the course every day and mm -hmm. just trying to get better every single day. And I feel like these are the little gifts that saying you're doing something right, keep mm. doing it. I like that. You know, and that's really what it is for me. I like that. Yeah. Well, Sinquan, you're doing something right, and now you're going to do something crazy. We're gonna get, do, can we get some disco music? Is that what's happening? Oh, we're getting disco music. We wanna, okay. Uh, okay. okay. Ooh, okay. okay. Oh, look, we got the light. Oh, okay, hey, we want a little disco. Hey, 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 hey. You're too good at this. You're hey. giving me life. All right, Sinquan, thank you for joining us. You guys can watch American Soul. Uh, it premieres on BET on Tuesday, February 5th. Up next, we're talking about climate change, because oh, why not? Why not? <laughs> you can like. You brought the heat. You brought the heat. Hey, change the climate news. Here's a tweet from Eric Solheim. Gone in a generation, extremely powerful photo report from Washington Post on how climate change is disrupting American lives and nature. Forest, floods, fires, fisheries. A stern wake-up call for all Americans. 
Yes, I definitely agree. It is a wake-up call. And Zoanne Murphy, Washington Post video journalist, joins me now to discuss her incredible piece from yesterday. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great. So you explored how climate change is affecting people. And I think it was really unique how you did this because you actually went and found people who climate change is impacting directly in their day-to-day -day lives. How did you come up with this idea and especially how to make it so visual for everyone? So the idea came about um, over a period of time. We wanted to show what climate change looks like here and now in the United States. And I know for me, uh, a lot of times when I think of climate change, the visuals that come to mind are glaciers far away, polar bears. Um, and we wanted to sort of show show it here in the United States and how it's really impacting individuals. So that's how the, the idea came about. I totally agree with you. I, I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons why people don't seem to connect to climate change reporting as much is because it does seem like a far off concept. Did you find anything in these stories that shared commonality? Yes, well, I think the, the theme of generations came about very naturally. Um, it evolved as we were doing the reporting. And what we were finding is that from generation to generation, things were changing drastically. That was one of the biggest themes. So um, the lobstermen in Maine talked about their fathers and their grandfathers fishing for lobster um, and how you know, they now need to think through whether their sons and grandsons and, and many times daughters and granddaughters will be able to do that as well. Um, and then in California, we spoke with um, a firefighter who had been um, working for 30 years fighting fires in California. And he said his son is facing a completely different kind of fire behavior than he had. So that theme of generations um, was woven through each of the stories. That's so fascinating. And it's something that I think we forget in the big city. You know, people have these positions where people do do them from generation to generation and they have this oral history that's so rich. Was there anything that you heard that really surprised you? Oh, so much of it surprised me. I mean, one of the reasons I thought this story was so important and this project was so important is because I didn't know a lot of these things. I didn't know that the lobster population in Rhode Island was diminishing. I didn't know that the forests in Montana were no longer um, sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere, but instead they were putting it back into the atmosphere. So, so much of the reporting was incredibly surprising to me. That detail that you just mentioned about the CO2, when I read that, I could barely wrap my brain around it. It was so incredibly awful, but so confusing and surprising as well to me. What do the people that you spoke to want people in DC or people here who are not seeing the impact of climate change? There's so many skeptics out there. What do they want people to know about how climate change is affecting them directly? I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, and it's overwhelming. These stories are really overwhelming, right? And but it's so important that we that we see that this is happening, right? And that this information and just knowing that this is happening can then be used by people who can make decisions about what needs to be done differently, what needs to be done differently in terms of policy, what needs to be done differently in terms of regulations. Um, those people can can use this information to make those decisions. Well, the only way that we are able to get this information and politicians and those who can make changes get this information is through reporting like yours, Joanne. So thank you so much for coming on and thank you for doing this important work. Thank you so much. And we are tweeting out her piece right now. I tweeted it out before the show, but it is truly incredible. Just for the videos and the images, it's beautiful. I encourage you all to read it. Up next, Isaac is talking about the MTA's accessibility issues and safety concerns. Well, here's a heartbreaking tweet from Dodi Stewart. A 22-year-old woman died Monday night after falling down a flight of stairs while carrying her daughter in a stroller at the 7th Avenue 53rd Street subway station in Manhattan. That station 
does not have an elevator. I'm joined now by Michael Gold, New York Times Metro reporter. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Sad to be talking about this, obviously. Sad to be talking about this. What what happened with Malaysia Goodson? Yeah, so Malaysia Good Goodson, she's a 22-year-old young mom, and she entered uh, the 53rd and 7th Street, uh, sorry, 7th Avenue subway station with her stroller, and she was carrying it down the stairs. We know that she fell down. Uh, we don't know how. The cause hasn't been determined yet. But she, she was found dead at the scene. Um, she had come from Stanford, Connecticut, but she was a New York City native, so she was used to navigating the subway system. But this is a challenge a lot of people face because the system is not that accessible. Because the system is not that accessible. How many subway stations do have functioning elevators? Functioning, let's put functioning aside for a second. So okay. uh, only about a quarter of the subway stations in New York City's system, and there are about 470 of them. So it's about 115 have uh, elevators at all. Now, those elevators break down a lot. So on average, um, the, an elevator in a subway system will break down 53 times in a year. And so if you do the math, that's about once every seven days. And those outages last anywhere from a few hours to a few days. So even when the stops have elevators, it's uh, not guaranteed that those elevators are going to be working. That they're going to be functioning at all. Uh, is, is there any plan or implementation to put more elevators into subway stations? I'm shocked to find out that the number of subway stations that actually even have elevators is so low. It's surprising when you see the number, definitely. So um, Andy Byford, who's the chief of the subway, has a plan. He wants to add 50 more elevators uh, by 2025. So that's in about the next five years. But if you do the math, that's still you know not a ton of elevators in a system as big as New York's. New York has the most subway stops in the world. It's one of the longest systems. It covers the tracks cover more miles than a lot of other places. So you're still talking about giant stretches of the subway system, which is crucial to the city, that aren't accessible to people who have disabilities. Who have disabilities? All right, and I do. I want to. Mm -hmm. Roxanne Gay tweeted: "There is no city more inaccessible than New York. Stairs, narrow passageways, broken elevators everywhere. It's a gauntlet." for anyone with a different kind of body. And now a lawsuit was filed against the MTA that described New York subway system as the least accessible in the country and accused it of violating the Americans federal uh, the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. Where is that lawsuit at? How did it get started? The lawsuit is still active. It started in 2017. A group called uh, Disability Rights Advocates, which files claims on behalf of people with disabilities, filed the suit. And the Federal Justice Department actually joined it in 2018. One of the issues here is the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act, which passed in the 1990s, requires government buildings and public act to be more publicly accessible. The subway system's old. New York's subway system started in 1904, and a lot of its structures were grandfathered in. Um, but a lot of these stations are not in compliance. And so the lawsuit is basically targeting them, saying, hey, you guys, we've got this, this rule in place that you're not following. And on the flip side of this, you know, Washington, D.C.'s metro, which was built maybe around the 1970s, all of its stations have elevators. Now, I lived in D.C. They're not always working either, but at least you're starting from a higher baseline. Okay, so again, you've got other cities that are handling this better. Look, this is a very New York City uh, story, okay? It's, it's very focused. It it's very local. But what do you think this says about public transportation in other cities kind of across the country? I think in general, uh, accessibility in public transit is, is crucial. And I think when you don't have to worry about it, it's something you take for granted. But everyone at some point could benefit from an elevator, whether you're a parent with a stroller, maybe you have a back injury, maybe you're carrying a huge package, and if we can't work that out for people, then you're, you're essentially cutting off huge swatches of, of cities. I mean, if you look at New York's system, there are places with as many as 10 stops where if you rely on elevators, those stations are completely inaccessible, which really limits how you navigate your city. Which navigate, and nav navigate the city. Has the MTA said anything about Malaysia Goodson uh, and, where, and where, that, that, where are we at with that story? Um, so right now we're waiting to see uh, what the medical examiner says. The MTA is working with New York police and the medical examiner to investigate this. Um, they call this a heartbreaking tragedy, and I think everyone who's heard this story would agree. I mean, this is a young mom. She, her, her child is one years old now, doesn't have a mother. Uh, they also pointed to efforts to pass what they call the Fast Forward Plan, which would add more elevators in addition to a lot of the other improvements that we've heard about the subway system needing. So the MTA is responding, and they are working with investigators to figure out what happened here. All right, well, uh, I hope that we see more accessibility across the board. Michael, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this story. And for your reporting up next, Saeed and I are going to read some of your tweets. Welcome back. We asked if you were a billionaire, what would you do instead of running for president? Katie says, 
Okay, please don't be alarmed, but sleep for sure. And then I want like a pool, like hot tub size, filled with mashed potatoes, because I really like mashed potatoes. <laughs> and Katie, I have a question for you. Are we talking just mashed potatoes? No butter. We talking butter? Pepper. We talking gravy? <laughs> What's gonna, how, what, maybe like even some extras, some bacon? Katie, what a wonderful way to like remind us that being that wealthy is just disgusting. <laughs> Thinking of ridiculous, the, you can oh, do it all Katie. the time. Oh God, it's Katie, like, I won't lie. I'm actually, I'm down. I like mashed potatoes like mashed too. Potatoes. I love mashed potatoes, but like, do you want them in like in your armpits? And okay, well, uh, Coastal <laughs> Elite tweeted, uh, advocate for policy changes that would make being a billionaire impossible. Oh, mm. I see what you did there. Yeah, okay. that's the thing. Being a billionaire, it's like I, being a multimillionaire sounds delightful. A billionaire, like that, what it takes. It's like sometimes, well, the thing is, like, there are so many billionaires who are just injecting themselves into the public conversation. Uh-huh. I feel like in my mind, it's become, like, we've forgotten, like, how insane it is. Like, what it, what it like, all these millionaires, like, yeah. billionaire, you're, like, here. It's like, why is this even There's having money, necessary. and then there's having so much money, you're stressed out about yeah. the money. I'll say that it's, it was just very telling to me. Again, we had that conversation earlier in the show, that he stepped on the scene, and the first thing he said was, like, well, I don't like these taxes, the billionaires thing. Like, that, that's the platform he's running, the platform that would affect, as, as Adam Serra pointed out, nearly, like, tens of people. Mm-hmm. Tens yeah. of people. Uh, it's also, to me, like... It says something, I can't get my mind past it a little bit, where he's like, if he runs as an independent, it could help Trump win, and maybe that's another way to kind of make sure those taxes don't get passed. Not, oh. Yeah, sorry, I put on my, my conspiracy hat there. Oh, for, for a second. <laughs> I'm just, just saying, y'all just connect the Actually, dots. I know I joke about Isaac being conspiracy theorists, but this just happened in real time. Oh, oh shit. Yeah, hmm. All right. You don't hate it, I, either. I, well, I hate it. Uh, well, Blazion <laughs> FMA had this to say about, oh my gosh, Sinkwa Walls is so nice. Um, you tweeted, they, gra- they grabbed some music from the Hello Opinions file folder this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's something we've learned. Um, playing, like, pop music, you know, on the show is, like, all but impossible because of rights. It's really expensive. Lawyers, it's just, like, everything. So, you know, we have to get creative. Shout out to Dan and audio, you know, coming up with music. So I told him during the break, I was like, whatever. And I was trying to underplay it because I was like, you know, it's not going to be, like, Diana Ross or anything. But then we were like... The lights kicked in. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. And he was a delight. He was so, absolutely a wonderful. a really hard, And he came with the moves. Cycle. He I was great. You too, though. You, oh, yeah. I mean, he was, he was really delightful, so... It was I don't really know. good. I love it. All right, well, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we'll continue to follow all of the news, of course. There's a lot going on, and a lot of it isn't great, but we thank you for trusting us with your morning. Thanks to our guests, Whitney Falloon, Josh Constein, Zach Stafford, George M. Johnson, Kate Nassara, Sinqua Walls, Stephanie McNeil, Zoanne Murphy, and Michael Gold. Thank you. I want to see, can we get that music back and some of those lights going again? We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. I think we're going to make every single guest dance from here on out. <laughs> Have a great rest of your day. Oh, it's back. There it is, see? I'm moonwalking. There we go. Moonwalking away.